It was 25 years ago this month that I read John's Gospel, that I read it for the first time. And by that, I don't mean that I read a little passage or a little bit of this or heard it in church. I mean, I sat down and for the first time, I read a whole gospel, page after page, from the beginning, or more precisely, in the beginning, through to the author saying that his book is incomplete um, because he could carry on writing all the stories of Jesus and it, there wouldn't be space for such books in the whole world. I had recently visited a church, and the pastor of that uh, independent evangelical church had given me a small tract that only had that gospel in it. Not a whole New Testament, just John's gospel. And I read the words, and 25 years ago, something spoke to me. The Gospels allow us to understand who Jesus is, why he came and dwelt among us, and what we need to do in order to have our sins forgiven and receive the hope of new life and eternal life. John reveals to us that although we each need to make our own personal commitment of faith, the Christian faith also requires us to be making that commitment on a daily basis, that we make it daily in the way we live the promises that we might have made in that commitment, be it as it was for me uh, in the bedroom of the house that I shared, just sat there by myself the words that have been shared in baptisms, the words that are shared when people come into church membership, the commitment of our faith, that needs to be done daily. And it's done through our actions. And if we do not live out our faith, the questions whether those words that we once prayed were simply empty and hollow or whether we truly meant those promises to follow the Lord. Jesus, at the Last Supper, where he broke bread and shared the cup, is reported by John to have tied a towel round his waist, to got down on his knees and to wash his disciples' feet. He demonstrated in loving service how much he cared and what sort of example his disciples should carry on with. And this had just happened immediately prior to the reading that Janet brought us this morning. It was once the bread had been shared, Judas left the room. 
that he went off. And so Jesus is there talking of being glorified, and that glorification is going to come when he makes the greatest sacrifice. So it's important that we understand that context of what Jesus is saying about love as we grapple with his idea of giving a new commandment, that you love one another. He's saying what love is. The old commandments, including the Ten Commandments given by the Lord to Moses in Exodus 20, are not cancelled by the new commandment. The instructions remain. So I hope uh, you know not to murder or to covet or to steal or commit adultery. And that you should both honor your parents and worship your God. But the new command expands the thought of these old commandments, um, taking what were quite defined into a much broader way of thinking. The disciples are to love as Jesus has loved them. But even as Jesus tells them this, there's only 11 in the room. The commandments are at that time being broken by Judas, who is betraying the Lord. Judas betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Then, as now, money is a great motivator. The nations from a pressure group may lead a politician to vote in a certain way or a company to change its priorities. And we see this in the stuff that's happening across in America just now. All the debate around gun control following the dreadful shootings that have happened. Politicians who receive funding from the National Rifle Association point to the mental health of the shooter or the failings by local law enforcement rather than the availability of guns. But on the flip side, businesses are starting to notice that their customers are threatening to boycott them if the company doesn't withdraw their support or their special offers for NRA members. So the business changes and withdraws the offer. But it's not doing that for some righteous reason. It didn't decide to do it itself, be it an airline or a car hire company. It's changing, not because of compassion for the victims or for some righteous reason, but it's doing it because it knows where its money comes from. Well, that's the other side of the pond. But the same can be true in this country, can't it? Do we act out what would be good for our own pocket and for what suits us? Or do we always think of what is the greater good 
or perhaps that should be for the greatest God. When it is an election, do we choose to vote for the candidate that will be the best for number one or for those in greatest need? In the discussions of politicians, do we hear them discussing future customs union or not in a way that is sacrificial and loving or that might preserve their own interests, whichever side of the debate they are on. Some of you might be listening this morning and thinking, well, Keith's talking about 454 grams of tripe. He isn't thinking in real-world ways. Of course, a business does everything it can to maximize profit. Of course, a politician defends his or her sponsor. Of course, we vote for the politician we think will serve our interests. We have a grip on reality. This is the way of the world. But the problem is the story of the gospel goes against what might be considered normal logic. It goes against the way of the world which is the very reason Jesus had to come. God sends his son into this sinful world. The Lord performs the task of the lowly servant in washing feet. Jesus could perform any miracle and had months earlier just walked away when soldiers had gone to arrest him because it was not the right time. And he could simply proceed. But now at the right time, he willingly accepts the path to the cross. The grave cannot hold the body. He is alive and able to be with his friends. All these things that have happened and will happen after our passage are not in the way of the world, but are in God's way. They happen because of love and the greatness of God. And the follower of Jesus is called, indeed in this passage, commanded to love as Jesus loved us. That is putting the other first, not thinking of status, not choosing our own way, but choosing to live sacrificially, to love one another, to love one another not simply in the local fellowship, but caring for the other in each part of this nation and every continent of the globe. This love may lead us to question the decisions that we make, how we really care for those that are around us, how we really relate to the planet. When I was training for the ministry, in Manchester, 
um, some years ago now, years past. You know, I think as I get, you know, just that little bit older, not greatly older, but just that little bit older, each year seems to go just a little bit quicker. Um, but uh, I, as I think back to when I was uh, training, we were 13, 14 years ago, um, there was a, a couple of students in our college that were from Kiribati. Um, the Gilbert Islands forms part of Kiribati. Um, and it, it's a Commonwealth country that comprises a, a large group of islands that kind of straddled the international date line. Um, it's the one that, uh, it's the land that sees the first sunrise and sees the last sunset each day. With about 90% of that population considered Christian, they're not fearful of persecution like some countries are. But they are very worried about the future of the nation because of global warming. It was said in about 2008 that it had almost passed the point of no return. The water just keeps coming up and the islands get smaller and indeed fewer in number. The decisions we make on the other side of the world contribute to the submergence of the island. When we fail to reduce our CO2 emissions, it is our sisters and brothers in Christ who will be the first to lose their homeland under the Pacific Sea. Do we show love to one another in the global sense in the decisions that we make? That submergence seems distant. And of course, the decisions are compounded by the choices of seven billion others. But as I've just said, when people start to say, I'm not buying into that anymore unless you change your ways, the companies do change their ways. But let's bring our thoughts closer to home, to our own fellowship. We here are commanded to love one another. Paul told the church in Corinth, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of right and wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Do we love? Do we, as a fellowship, love? Do we love the people outside? Do we love those that are 
among us? Do we live up to who we are called to be? Loving in the local fellowship involves sacrifice. It requires putting the other first ahead of you. When we speak about other people within the fellowship, or when we speak to them, do we pull them down? Do we make them be submerged? Do we drown them? Or do we build them up? Do we encourage? Do we give hope? Do we inspire people? Do we seek God when we come together? Or do we express our own personal opinions about what worship should be if it was done properly? When we have a low opinion of someone in the church, or think, oh, that's typical of them. That is not love. When we expect perfection rather than an individual struggling to do their best, that is not love. But when we do love, when we have real love for one another, then people within and outside the church will see that we are Christ's disciples that we are living the way that Jesus our Lord tells us to live. And what a difference that will make. People will see that our words are not empty in meaning, but have changed something within us. When we have love, our fellowship will be focused on Christ and in journeying his way. And others will want to be a part of it. We are to love and to encourage others in love. At the start of this sermon, I told you of uh, having been given a tract, John's Gospel. And I would like to be able to put my hand in my pocket and to take it out and show it to you and say, this is what I read. This is the hope I got. That's it. But I can't do that because I don't have that gospel anymore. I have it written in Bibles, but I don't have that booklet because I gave it away. I passed it on to someone else. They had need of it at that time. Likewise, the Bible that I had bought the Saturday after that Sunday that somebody gave me John's Gospel on. I don't have that one. It's no longer among the 30 or more Bibles that Emmeline and I own next door. I gave that Bible to someone else years ago in the hope that they might read it and discover the hope and the love that God has for them and that they might have that love for others. We are about to share a meal of love, of remembering true love, sacrificial love, 
a body broken, blood poured out for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins. A hope that can be had. As we share the meal, think of how you love. How you love your family, how you love in this fellowship, how you are called to have love for one another.